Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, my good friends. Welcome back. Thank you again for coming by. Now, being that I jumped the gun on the Halloween special last week because I had the show all ready to go, and far be it for me to sit on a story, you know, too long... I have another pretty spooky story that might help you get through the holiday. Have you ever heard somebody talk and just sit back and listen to their thoughts on different topics all the while thinking, I wonder if this person has any idea how messed up they sound? Well, there's a good chance folks think that very thing about me, sitting here on a podcast pontificating about whatever pops in my mind, but I digress. It seems like these type of folks just keep waxing eloquent about treating others like dirt and seem to think it's funny or maybe they just think it makes them look a whole lot brilliant or maybe some kind of a scallywag that gets by with things or some sort of guess maybe just makes me think they're lower than a snake's belly at high at the bottom of a holler on high noon believe it or not there are people out there that do know exactly how sick they are but just can't stop themselves among these people are a lot walking among us called serial killers. Now, not all of them know they're sick. They just go about doing stuff until they're stopped. What makes the whole thing even more scary is that you can look one of them dead in the eye and couldn't even tell them from an innocent, fine, upstanding citizen. That's because a whole bunch of them are fine, upstanding citizens, but they ain't quite that innocent. Come on in and grab a seat and let me tell you all about one that knew they was sick from day one <laughs> was as sick as the day was long as a matter of fact in august of 2007 a hunter in new britain connecticut was walking around a wooded area behind a strip mall looking for a place to hunt now for those of us out there that don't hunt you might be wondering why somebody be out in the woods in august poking around for a place to hunt it might sound just a little bit nefarious to you but in all actuality 
that's the exact time of the year that you go out in the mountains to do what they call a bit of scouting. You look around for signs of deer, squirrel, or whatever game you might be interested in hunting when hunting season comes around. You pick out your nice spot, remember where it is, and then be sure and get all the permission you need to go hunt there, and then you're ready to go on up in the day. Anyway, that's what the old boy was doing when he found a human skull, and as we all would, would uh, called the police. When police arrived at the scene, they uncovered the mutilated body of a woman, and uh, while in the process of doing so, they found two more in much the same condition as the first one. So, by the time they are all done, they had found a total of three to haul back to the coroner's office. The first body to be identified was that of 53-year-old Diane Cusack. Diane was a 55-year-old resident of New Britain who disappeared in mid-2003. <clears throat> Police last had contact with her on July 11th of that year during a landlord-tenant dispute. Now, they didn't know who she was at first because she wasn't identified until 2011. Why did it take so long, you ask? Well, it's a sad thing. Miss Cusack had a drug problem and had been out of contact with her family for <clears throat> a few years, so they never really reported her missing. The second Jane Doe was another local girl, 23-year-old Joy Martinez, who had went missing in October 10, 2003, but wasn't reported missing until March 29, 2004. The family got a little bit suspicious when she didn't show up for her own birthday party. She was last seen in her hometown of East Hartford, where she lived with her mother. In high school, she had been a track star, and at the time of her disappearance, she was unemployed, and she wasn't identified, actually, until 2013. The third body was identified as Mary Jane Menard, a 40-year-old substance abuse counselor from Waterbury, who had went missing from her New Britain and home in October, 23rd, uh, October 2003. This time, there was a witness that had seen the whole thing go down. The witness saw Mary Jane getting into a black or dark blue van being driven by a big hairy man named Bill, but that was the only lead they had, and it soon went cold. As it turns out, all three women disappeared during the same six-month time span in 2003. For years, the case just sat there cold as ice. Yes, the police would have worked any cases or leads that they had coming in, but there just wasn't a single lead coming in. That's when a local attorney named Ann Howard, who, as it turns out, was also a crime writer, stumbled on the case and started poking around and putting some puzzle pieces together and tried to figure out the case. Attorney Howard wondered as most folks around the area did, just who the monster was that perpetrated the killing and burying of these women and leaving them to be found in the middle of nowhere in New Britain. She started blogging about it and started researching cold cases and unsolved murders in the area. Then she started wondering if these cases were the only bodies that could be there and even more maybe be there. That's when she came across something that everybody else had missed. It was another crime, the disappearance of 33-year-old Nilsa Asmerende from the neighboring town of Waterfield, or Weathersfield, sorry. And it happened during the exact same time period that the other women went missing. 
And that's not the only thing. There was a witness to this one, too. It was Nilsa's boyfriend who told the police that he saw her get into a van. And yes, folks, a dark blue van, to be exact. But as it turned out, her crime was solved. The police had gathered their information based on the description given by her boyfriend and found that the van was registered to a Miss Dorothy Holcomb. Then the detectives on the case learned that Miss Holcomb's boyfriend was named William Devin Howard. Interestingly enough, folks called him Bill. And according to his girlfriend's parents, the genius had just bought the van for about $400. That's when they called the CSIs in to process the van. They found a blood stain in the middle of the back seat, which was sent to the state crime lab for testing. The lab found that the blood was that of Miss Asmarunde, and they also found six videotapes of the deviant Howl having some kind of a weird tree climbing off the wall sex with the women. But the videos were shot in such a way to ensure that the faces of these women were not clearly visible. William Devin Howell was, in, was then politely pounced on, arrested, and connection with Nilsa Asmerendi's disappearance, even though cops didn't have a body. The overgrown sack of dog squeeze, Mr. Howell, takes a plea deal for manslaughter and is sentenced to 15 years in prison. And easy peasy, that was it, at least for the time being. That was before somebody found the other bodies, you know, the ones we talked about earlier. All of a sudden, and seemingly out of nowhere of the wild blue yonder, William Devin Howell was named as a suspect in these murders, too. Who was the William Devin Howell feller I'm telling you about now? Well, we know this much. He was born on February 11, 1970 in Hampton, Virginia. In his own words, he had a happy childhood. He was raised by good parents who didn't abuse him or do anything to him in the world except love him. It seems that while in prison, like these brilliant killers do, Dr. Howell confessed to his cellmate, Jonathan Mills. And Mr. Mills said that the Mr. Howell told him the terrifying tale of this alter ego called the Sick Ripper. The Sick Ripper would cruise the town like the Green Hornet. Of course, he didn't have Cato, of course. And he would pick up women in his murder mobile, kill them and bury them in the woods right where all the bodies were found. That's when Mr. Mills, even though he was behind bars with the heathen philosopher Mr. Howe called the police. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, after talking to Mr. Mills, the officers liked what they heard. Like, according to Lieutenant Joe Kenda, means in police lingo that they thought it was a very credible confession. And soon, after thinking that they'd better go back out there and where the bodies were found and check around for more, maybe there, you know, might be some clues or something they'd missed, or maybe some bodies. Well, it turns out they were right, and more human remains were found. The investigators dug up four more bodies while they were there. That brings the body count to seven. Six women and one man, police wonder why would be one man. Soon, the coroner identified the other victims as follows. 29-year-old Melanie Ruth Camelini, a mother of two from Seymour, who went missing January 1, 2003. She had recently been living in Waterbury and was last seen in that area with two men. 
Camelini or Miss Camelini was known to have a drug problem and would regularly disappear for long periods of time. Her body was identified in 2015. 44-year-old Danny Lee Wisnett was also known as Janice Roberts, a transgender woman from New Britain who was last seen in 2008 or June 18, 2003, when she was seen getting into Mr. Howell's blue van at a stopping shop in Weathersfield. She was reported missing June 24th, and that would be why there was a male as the police identified her involved. Marilyn Mendez Gonzalez was the other one, a 26-year-old woman with, and the mother of two children who went missing in 2003 after she left her home in Waterbury, and a 33-year-old Nilsa Asmarendi on thir- July 31st, 2003, a woman told police that her sister Nilsa had not been heard from for seven days. Her boyfriend, a convicted drug dealer, was immediately a suspect in her disappearance, but was ultimately cleared after passing the polygraph test. Now me, I don't put any faith in one of those things and would have probably been following that squirrely little dope slinger around like a hound dog with, on a raccoon. And that, my good friend, would be why I'm not an investigator. Nelson's sister told police that she was a heroin user and a sex worker who was living in a motel in Weathersfield along with her boyfriend, the aforementioned dope slinger. And she told investigators that he and Nelson would had allowed Mr. Howell to stay overnight in their room and that he last seen, saw his girlfriend at 2.30 a.m. on July 25th when he got she got into Mr. Howell's van. This is where I imagine the police thinking that he's talking about somebody from Gilligan's Island. I don't know. But anyway, after all of the body <clears throat> finding and the van searching was finished up, William Devin Howell was yanked up from his nap in his cell dragged back to town and properly charged with multiple capital felony murders. Then they took his big overgrown shackled up rear end back and <clears throat> locked him up where he was. Probably went ahead and engraved him a nameplate for his cell because he probably wasn't going anywhere for any time soon. The prosecutors had six out of seven DNA samples matching the victims found in the moron's van. With this, he was given the title of the most notorious serial killer in the state of Connecticut history. Probably an award that he really didn't mind getting, being the deviant that he was, except for one thing. Now he's got to pay for it all. It was then that the good-for-nothing William Devin Howell decided that he didn't want to want a trial. He just wanted to plead guilty to all charges. He admitted to the murders, and while he waited sentencing, the attorney and crime writer we talked about earlier, Ann Howard, contacted him and told him that she was interested in writing a book about him. As it turned out, the sick ripper of the Appalachians was interested in telling her all about his exciting escapades around the area. He confessed in letters in which he describes his killing spree almost like he was proud of it or something. Of course, most of them are, are once they, I mean, are proud of it once they know there's no death penalty involved. He describes parking in the corner of McDonald's parking lot in New Britain, where he took advantage of and sexually assaulted and strangled three of his victims as 
poor unsuspecting folks went by going through the drive-thru for their happy meals. He said that he would duct tape their mouths so that nobody would hear him screaming and that he was careful to park in the dark corners of the lot. Even though he would be in the parking lot that had a public access and even had cars parked next to him at times. He also told about Nilsa's Mirindi. He said that he wanted to, or she wanted a ride into Hartford, so he grabbed her, sexually assaulted her all night, and then into the next day. And then he killed her and threw her down the hill where they found her and all the other ones. In fact, that's where he would drive his van, slide the side door open, and just throw the bodies up down the bank and and where they, even though they were buried when they were found they weren't buried very deep because it was like the uh, water washed dirt down on top of them he just threw them over the bank wrapped in trash bags he just yeah just threw them right down and they would tumble into the bottom of the ravine where the uh, water and dirt would wash over them he said about his first victim melanie camelletti he said, I grabbed her by the throat, raised the hammer, and told her, all I wanted was sex. And if you didn't give me any trouble, you won't get hurt. Then in spite of it all, he whacks her with a hammer and strangles her to death. And I'm not done yet. He then gave her a nickname, Baby, and slept beside her body for two weeks in his van. Yeah, I think Sick Ripper about does it, don't you folks? He said about Marilyn Gonzalez that after taking advantage of her all night... He got up and took her through the drive-thru at McDonald's for some breakfast. It was her last meal before he pounced on and strangled her to death. He, in fact, did this with most of his victims. He'd go through the Mickey D's and right through the drive-thru with a half-naked, tied-up woman in the back and told them if they made a single sound, it'd be their last one. And nobody saw a thing. The maniac also said that he had tried to engage Janice Roberts in a act and uh, when realizing that she was transgender he strangled her for just being that and on November 17th 2017th the deviant Howe was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences for plea after pleading guilty to the murders of Miss Cusack, Miss Martinez, Miss Menard, Miss Gonzalez, Miss Camelini and Miss Roberts. He cried not not because he had remorse mind you but because he got caught and apologized to the families of the victims during the sentencing, calling his actions monstrous, cowardly, and selfish. He told the court that uh, he deserved the death penalty, which was abolished by Connecticut's Supreme Court in 2015. Yeah, lucky him. Just another horror story to come out of these Appalachian Mountains, folks. Hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that needed to be told, told, I guess you'd say. I'm not talking to everybody in the mountains, am I? <laughs> but if you have, please rate and review the podcast. Don't forget to follow us, please. Join us on Facebook, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast Group, where we discuss everything Appalachian and whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend. Happy Halloween. Oh, really, this time.